0: this is a time when courage is very much required. All leaders need to be stepping back and thinking about what's good and right for the company and the business over time. What is right for the employees, Once ones who are going to have to deliver any strategy? Clarity of strategy is great, but culture and organizational talent are what's going to make the difference. And then leading with integrity and humility in a way that conveys the authenticity that allows people to follow in the right direction. And that's not about divisiveness. That's about clarity and unity and doing what's right.
1: Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work
2: and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G alumni podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at
1: p the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow p alums, we have to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. How they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going.
2: It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate.
1: On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader, Terry List. It was a great conversation about courage, not just in your career, but with yourself as well. Here's a quick bio. Terry List is a 35-year finance veteran. She's currently a board director at Microsoft, Double Verify, and Donna Haircore, a life sciences company. Terry's is the former EVP and Chief Financial Officer for Gap, Inc., where she oversaw the finance, real estate, and IT organizations. She held similar CFO roles at Dick's Sporting Goods and Kraft Foods. Terry spent nearly 20 years at P&G, ultimately advancing to SCP of Finance and Treasure. But unlike many P&G alumni execs, she actually got her start at Deloitte & Touche, where she spent nine plus years providing financial counsel to large multinationals. Terry received her bachelor's degree in accounting from Northern Michigan University and is a certified public accountant. What I love about Terry is how open she was, not just about her career milestones and roadblocks, but the doubts that she had to overcome along the way of her career journey. You know, I just really enjoy talking to folks that aren't necessarily from sales and marketing, be it R&D, or in Terry's case, finance and accounting, because from their background, they have a very matter-of-fact approach about the business, whatever the situation might be. And that doesn't mean that Terry isn't a people person. In fact, one of the things that motivates her is really getting to connect with the people she's working for and with. Terry's just really passionate about helping find a diverse team that can thrive and sharing her thoughts on the long term decisions that leaders need to be making, not just with the business, but with their people. It's not all about the short term wins, it's really about the long game. So let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Terry. Terry, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here.
0: Thanks. Happy to be here. Well, actually, a little intimidated to be here, I have to tell you. When <laughs> when we first talked about doing this, I think late last spring, it sounded like a great idea. Since then, I've listened to all the other podcasts, and I'm just more than a little bit intimidated.
1: Oh, no, Terry, you're going to scare off all the other guests we're trying to get on the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's going to be a great conversation because- I've not had the opportunity to speak with you. And I've seen you speak. I've heard so much about you from a lot of mutual connections from the company. And many already know your professional story. You're a 35-year financial veteran. You're currently a board director at Microsoft and Double Verify and Donna Hare, a life sciences company. And You're the former EVP and Chief Financial Officer for Gap, where you oversaw finance, real estate, and IT orgs. You held similar CFO roles at Dick's Sporting Goods and Kraft Foods. And you spent nearly 20 years at P&G, ultimately advancing to the SVP of finance and treasurer. But you got your start at Deloitte & Touche, where you spent nine plus years providing financial counsel to large multinationals. And of course, you have a bachelor's degree from Northern Michigan, and you're a CPA. And there's a lot that I really want to dig into. But I guess my first question, Terry, is... Who were you at the beginning, before the career journey even started? Can you tell us a story from your youth?
0: Yes. So I have to go very far back to my youth, I have to say. and I came from a very small town in northern Michigan, and as I was reflecting on this podcast question, because you ask it of nearly everyone, I had to go back and think about just how different things are today than they were when I was growing up. So grew up in Alpena, Michigan, a very small town. My parents, who have been married now for 60 years, and my two brothers, one older, one younger, and we had sort of the classic small-town life. My father owned his own business. He had a couple of of different ventures he tried, some more successful than others. And it taught me a couple of things. It taught me the value of hard work. It also taught me the Value for me personally of a little more predictability and stability than an entrepreneurial life can sometimes provide, and so that became sort of one of the tenets that I think formed my choices as I, I moved through my life. But the one thing that the reflection caused me to acknowledge is just how different things are today than when I was growing up, and so in this small town environment. I was a good student. I was clicking along, getting A's in English, A's in math. And yet, as a woman in high school, there was no one who was channeling me toward more ambitious goals. So, for example, when it came to biology class and I said, I don't like biology, they were like, okay, well, why don't you take stenography and typing? and home ec. And so I literally went through high school and college without any biology or chemistry classes, which is just crazy in today's environment. And and who knows, I don't think I would have been a good biologist, chemist, doctor, but I never even really had a chance to do it because it wasn't encouraged. And even 10 years ago, I was speaking at a high school in Cincinnati And I noticed it was an all-girls school and the focus even then was still on traditionally female careers, nursing, education, not doctors and business. And so, and of course, STEM in general now is a real high point and, and I'm, so encouraged by that. So it's a bit of a long way of of saying that I grew up in a small town. I wasn't pushed academically necessarily or career-wise. And so I sort of had to find my own way, which is how I ended up at Northern Michigan University. It's interesting
1: because worldviews get shaped at that young age. If you're told you don't have to be good at that, you don't have to do that, the fallacy of people saying, I'm not good at math, I'm not good at art if the push doesn't exist sometimes you have to get pushed a little further so when you went to northern michigan based on what everyone was telling you in in high school and as a kid what did you choose to do
0: and this is a bit of a terrible story is i i went to northern and i met my roommate and 5 minutes later she and i went together to sign up for classes and i said peggy what are you going to sign up for she said with such certainty i'm going to be an accountant and i said okay, well, I'll take accounting too. And, and so- it, <laughs> That is the fork in the road. <laughs> <laughs> it's a terrible way to choose your career. It turned out- that it's great. That it, it's great. had some talent for it and it worked out okay, but that's the way it started.
1: I want to ask a question. And this, I apologize if this is a little ignorant. When I came up in college, accounting was a female. There were more girls in the accounting major. As an engineer, were there no girls in engineering? <laughs> but back then, finance and accounting- Were they more male-dominated fields and majors in college?
0: Back then, they were actually quite equal. And so Hmm. when I started at my first public accounting job, my entrance class was 50% male-female. And I assumed that that meant the diversity issue had been resolved because- we were coming in at 50-50, surely we will all have equal chances for success and we will move along together. And of course, that was 1984 and that did not happen. But back then it was more equal. I think over time, there's some risk of this that women migrate to accounting because it's more manageable. Finance may be more challenging And so I want to make sure that we continue to see finance and accounting as good places for women, both finance and accounting. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: If we kind of fast forward to today, how are you similar to that younger version of yourself that followed Peggy into the accounting major? Or how are you different?
0: (laughs) Well, I would say that I'm still a bit of a follower. I have to say, although I have learned to be—I don't
1: believe that for a minute—a leader.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm equally comfortable in both roles, I guess, is what I would say. And I'd say I'm still achievement oriented, but I'm not an overachiever, and I think that's indicative of how I was at that point as well. I certainly think my confidence has grown over the course of my career. And I've become a better, smarter risk taker and more certainly a much broader worldview than I had at that time in my life.
1: Well, that touches on one of those early stories from your career. Unlike a lot of P&G alums, you didn't get your start at Procter. You started at one of the big accounting firms. You started at Deloitte. And I learned this from all of the accountants, many of whom were female, that I knew in college, that there's the elite finance companies. And you got into one. And you did start in northern Michigan, but that eventually helped you broaden your horizons to New York City. Can you can you talk about that transition?
0: Sure. And this does represent both fork in the road for me and a life lesson. So when I graduated from college, accounting majors generally went into public accounting, which is what I did. And I was lucky to get an offer from a number of firms. And I joined Deloitte at the time in Saginaw, Michigan, which was still a very small town, but it was fortunate to have great clients. And so I had some really good experiences with General Motors, with Dow Chemical. And so I had a big Office experience in a small office setting, which very much suited me at the time. And I was doing quite well. And one day, about four years into my public accounting career, a partner called me in. And this partner was one of my earliest mentors. And he called me in and he said, Terry, I have a wonderful opportunity for you. You're going to Love it. It's going to be so challenging. You're going to be able to work with the best and the brightest in the firm in a development program in New York. And all of those words terrified me competing with the best and the brightest, moving from Michigan to New York. I just, I was so comfortable as a bit of a big fish in a small pond where I was. I hadn't even defined parameters of my life or my career that went beyond that. And here he was not only offering it to me, but clearly expecting me to be excited about it. And I was terrified. And he obviously saw that. Because he looked at me and he said, you seem, Terry, as though you don't have the confidence in yourself to go after this. And he was right. But being who I am, which is a bit of a competitive streak in my core, I went home and talked with my husband and went back the next morning and said, I'm in. I'm going to do it. And off we went to New York to compete with the best and the brightest. And lo and behold, I did just fine. And I learned a tremendous amount. And that, in fact, was where my world horizons began to broaden. And I saw how much more was available to me than a small practice office in a small city in Michigan. And it, it changed my life and it changed my career.
1: What were some of those Kind of moments in New York in that career, those things that did kind of not just set your trajectory, but kind of broaden your worldview. What were, I mean, and it can be as simple as getting a hot dog in the city versus in (laughs) Michigan, but like, what were, I mean, I'm a kid from Alabama, right? Who moving to Cincinnati was the big city for me. And now, and then later on, I went to New York City. Later on, I went to Asia and Europe. But a girl from Michigan asking your husband to transplant his life as well to New York. What, What were some of those experiences?
0: Yeah, no, it was a good time in life for us to do it because we were we we, I'd gotten married in college and so we'd been married for five or six years and we didn't yet have children. So we did approach it as a bit of a big adventure and what we found was, because it was a two-year program initially, so we thought we'd only be there for two years, and because the office was moving from New York to Connecticut within a few months, we, we settled in Connecticut, but we settled in and made such amazing friendships with others who were in the program. So, while I was competing with them. We also became the best of friends and to this day still are. So, we just took full advantage of the opportunity to live and work in that area. So, we traveled up and down New England. We we explored New York City. We met people who had had such different experiences. And I think it's a bit of my foundational experience that that defined the passion i have for diversity because i worked with such different people who opened my eyes to both adventures but also experiences that shaped them that were so different than those that shaped me and so it was it was truly transformational
1: that's great yeah i mean the thing i almost take for granted now that i'm in this part of the country is the diversity that it's just afforded to you and so, yeah, it's the biggest difference other than the more expensive rent, <laughs> uh, but, but it's supply and demand. There's high demand for this diverse area, so therefore, rents are higher. In your career early on, did anything not quite work out that you thought it would?
0: I think we all have things that didn't work out quite as we expected. I would say that on the business front, I didn't have any colossal failures, which is thankful, knock on wood. And I think that's because it's not because everything went according to plan. It's because one of my maybe innate skills or maybe my acquired skills is a degree of adaptability and a willingness to stay open-minded. So even though I'm good at, at defining a course and having an end goal in mind, I tend to try to keep all of my options open and continually be listening. And so as any plan started to veer out of control, I think my skill is to understand what's going wrong and adapt to it, fix it, and keep it on track. So, it may not end up exactly as planned, but it doesn't end up as a colossal failure. And so, I think that's, I've been fortunate that way. I do think, though, that one area that didn't go quite as planned And it was a bit of a learning and it turns out to be quite a gift is that, and I think this happens to a lot of us because we we tend to be somewhat overachievers in delivering our best work is what we do from the time we're young through college and, and into our early career. And I had been really lucky that I had done pretty well in school and I had done pretty well at Deloitte. And and I was lucky to get the Procter & Gamble job, which was very unusual to be able to get that opportunity when you don't join from campus. And my performance reviews were always good. And then I got a performance review at Procter that had some constructive suggestions in it. And I honestly had never received any. And I realized, of course, with hindsight that that was a disservice to me, that I had plenty of things that required constructive addressing, but it was not until I got to Proctor that I really started to appreciate the importance of transparent feedback and the importance of understanding, internalizing, and addressing that. And that's a gift. And that's a gift. And that's, that's one that I didn't receive until I got to Proctor. And that, that really did help me learn both how to continue to improve myself, but also how to give constructive feedback to others in order to help them develop to their fullest.
1: What was some of that early constructive feedback? I know it might be cringeworthy to think about
0: Oh, yeah. Gosh, I can remember. It's so funny because I can remember the very first one. It was, I had always been a good writer and I, I like writing. I enjoy it. I find it therapeutic sometimes. And so I got feedback from a pretty senior person who said my writing was too, I think you might've said thick and difficult.
2: <laughs> wow.
0: And it was the classic p g one-page memo training coming through. And at first I was very defensive. I'm like, no, I get A's all the time in my English classes. I'm a very good writer. I'm a great, everyone says I'm a good communicator. And then I realized well, I have to go figure out what it's going to take to meet his expectations. And I I really started to pay attention. And I took the writing course and I really pruned my memos, which were what we did at the time, extra hard whenever I was sending something to him. And, And it turned out that that feedback was not only appropriate, but very helpful in terms of improving my skills over time.
1: Yeah, feed, feedback like that can be a gift, especially early on, right?
0: Humiliating, what? though, it felt. At
1: <laughs> <moment>. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any one of us who haven't had that moment, especially when you're like, but I'm a good writer. People say that. <laughs> well, I, I have a family friend, and uncle, and he once told me that I remember this when I wanted to be an artist and not go be an engineer. And I was like, all my friends say I'm a great artist. And he was like, your friends tell you what you want to hear. Your family tells you what you need to hear. And something about great constructive feedback is it's what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear, because feedback is a gift. So, Terry, you've often referenced that you define a leader, and, and I love this quote, one is who is courageous, inspiring, and collaborative. And you underline the word courage when you talk about this. Can you talk about some of those moments when you've had to embrace courage? Because finance as a function is usually the sobering function that brings all of us marketers and idea guys and sales guys to
0: kind of reality. Yeah, and I do think courage is so important. And in some respects, finance people have to have more courage than most because we are often bringing bad news or constraints versus opportunities, not unilaterally, but sometimes. And to be honest, that one isn't as hard for me. I haven't had times where it took inordinate courage to bring bad news to the fore because in some respects, facts are facts. And oftentimes in finance, we at least have data on our side and we can explain why we have a certain point of view or, or a certain constraint that we need to introduce. So, I haven't felt that tremendous courage was needed in that respect. Where I, I've run into real need for courage is more in matters of people and in matters of integrity. And those are ones where facts may play into it, but there is a judgment that makes it more difficult and therefore requires more courage to really bring the issue to the fore and to have the debate and to stand up for your position. And I think having that courage does define the best leaders. And in my experience where I have myself or had others model that and drive for the right outcome... And typically, as I said, the right outcome being one that's maybe a little murky in terms of matters of people or integrity, that's where it makes a real difference, I think, to ensuring that that you're headed in the right place.
1: Are there any examples of those moments?
0: This is public information. I was at two companies where the CEOs resigned in situations that were not as planful, maybe, as they could have been. And Leading up to those, there were so many things that happened that became very emotional. And it took a lot of courage to be able to bring forward facts and bring forward discussions, facilitate discussions to ensure that all sides were heard and the right decisions were made. And so that's why I say matters of people can can be difficult because performance is sometimes more difficult to measure than just sales growth and earnings progress. There's other elements at the leadership level that define whether or not you're delivering sustainable growth and performance that's that's appropriate for the role. So that's where I've, I've found the most courage required is to have those conversations. So, and I
1: don't know if I'm, I'm digging too far into some of the stories you told, but You actually gave a talk at Berkeley, where you talked about some of your own CFO transitions. After Procter, you were at Kraft, and then after Kraft, you were at Dix. And then you did land in a great role at Gap. But so many of our listeners have kind of hit this period where we're trying and not always being successful of finding our next fit. Can you talk about that kind of era of your career, that moment in those pre-Gap years with kind of some of the experiences you were having, how did you know to move on that these other seemingly great titles and big, big internationally known companies, how did you know they weren't a fit? What did you learn then?
0: (laughs) It's a great question. And I sometimes joke that I have three phases to my career, now four at the time, three, and those were my public accounting Portion of my career, which extended nearly a decade, my Procter and Gamble portion of my career, which extended almost two decades, and then the third period was the one where I couldn't seem to hold a job, <laughs> and that one was, frankly, my probably one of my gr- more growthful personally times, but but certainly not exactly what I had planned to do. And so I joined Kraft as CFO from Procter after being, I think, faced with one of my most difficult. Career decisions because at Proctor at that time I was the treasurer and I had one of the most amazing roles in the company, in my opinion. I had but at the time, what was called external business development. I'm not sure what it's called today. I had the capital markets part of treasury. I had investor relations. I had a terrific relationship with John Moeller, the CFO, who allowed me to do a lot of things organizationally that I loved and got a lot of satisfaction from. And so I was, I was really loving my role, and I was involved in almost everything of consequence going on in the company. So it was intellectually very stimulating but I had done it long enough that it, I wasn't learning as much as I had been. And the craft opportunity came along and I had always been telling the headhunters who of course were calling a female treasurer of Procter & Gamble on a regular basis with opportunities that what I was looking for was really three things. One was a company that was in the the consumer space, because I love the consumer space. The second was a company that was big enough to matter, but a bit smaller than Procter, so I could really wrap my arms around it and feel like I could have the influence I would like. And the third was that, frankly, I wanted to stay in the Midwest. My family was there. I'm a Midwestern girl. That's where I wanted to be. And so when Kraft came along, it it filled the bill on all levels. But I was still forced to think about, do I want to leave Procter I'm so close to retirement. I could stay here. It's a, it's a good job. It's a financially comfortable job. It's a very comfortable lifestyle in Cincinnati. Why take the risk? And and ultimately courage won out and and I I made the jump to craft. And it was really a great experience, I would have to say. The CEO is what attracted me to the role originally because he had a real purpose-based approach to his leadership. It turned out that his execution wasn't as strong and that became a real hindrance, but but I learned a lot about inspirational leadership from him and the importance it has on organizational drive and performance. And we were doing some pretty good things with the company. But then some things happened on multiple levels and the CEO resigned. New leadership came in and it was very clear that the intent of the new leadership was to sell the company. And it was their view that was the best way to create quick value from the brands. And I felt very strongly that where that would take us as a company and across the broader stakeholder group would not be the best thing for the things that mattered to me. And sure enough, Kraft was sold to 3G. The stock went up to, I think, 94 or something from 40. And the company was sold and a lot of things changed. And the stock now is somewhere around 35. And so it was, it was, Right, that I didn't stay there because I couldn't be in a company where I didn't respect the leadership and the strategies that were being undertaken for the company. And so it's a bit of a long story. I'll, I'll try to wrap it up pretty quickly. But from there, you know, I was a little bit shell shocked because I was two years in, not quite two years in, to my first CFO role. Quite worried that that was going to look like I had totally failed as CFO. And so I became very obsessed with landing the next CFO job. And so I was literally running away from craft rather than running to the next opportunity. And I landed probably too quickly at Dick Sporting Goods, which is by the way, a terrific brand and a wonderful business. And it's it's doing remarkably well. And it it had many of the things I wanted, which was consumer orientation. It was growing. I hadn't been in retail, so it was a great learning experience. But it turns out it wasn't a good culture fit. And I knew that pretty quickly. and And I knew it was probably a consequence of me moving too fast to to rectify the craft situation, and and so it was one that I did everything I could to stay for a year, but it just from the beginning I knew it wasn't a fit, and so I retired at that point and thought that I had would call it a day, and then as and then the universe out,
1: came calling, yeah, exactly
0: as you pointed out, <laughs> Gap came along and said, no, no, please, please try, and so I moved to San Francisco. I worked at Gap. We had a, a great set of experiences. It's a very, very tough business. And then of course, COVID has created even more challenges, but I'm rooting for Gap to continue to evolve its brands and succeed in this environment.
1: As someone who's also kind of had career transition, multiple companies over the years, big companies, startups, Midwestern, East Coast, international, we've all had managers of varying degrees. Some good, some bad. Something I personally come to appreciate is that you can learn something from every boss, good or bad, learning what to do, but also what not to do. And you've talked about some of the bosses that you've had over the years, almost like these archetypes, the competence builder, the maturity builder, the advocate, the naivete breaker, and the perfect boss. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of those. I'm, I'm actually most interested in the naivete breaker.
0: <laughs> yes, the naivete breaker. And this is a little bit of a lesson that I think many... Proctor alumni have experienced because I think at Proctor, we have such a strong culture and such a focus on development of people and the level of integrity, the expectation that people will do the right thing in the right way is so strong not that every single person in Procter Gamble is a wonderful person at their core, but generally speaking, the level of integrity is so high and the level of capability is so high and the degree of accountability is so high that we're fortunate that we don't even actually have to think about the fact that someone may not be well intended in what yeah
1: you doing. sometimes don't have that realization until you're outside.
0: Exactly. And so I ended up with a a manager once I left Proctor who actually wasn't trustworthy, who actually was I used the word Machiavellian in how they approached their role. And it was a, an eye-opening experience because I never had been in an environment where I had to think six moves out. To ensure that I wasn't going to end up trapped in something. And I love and thrive in, in an environment where there is open, candid conversation, where people are thinking together about how to move the business forward or how to drive an initiative to success. And so, suddenly, being in an environment where I had to be very, very calculating was exhausting to me. But it did teach me that, in fact, you can't trust everyone and i think this is probably continues to be one of my greatest flaws is that every person i meet i assume they are a good person and i am often rewarded because they are but i am sometimes surprised because they are not and so this naivete still exists with me but but i certainly got a good dose of reality from this manager and it's it's it helped me be smarter in how I dealt with political situations going forward.
1: I had a manager once tell me that the best kind of managers manage the people first, the company second, and then the functional politics, if you will, last. I also had another manager once tell me, trust but verify, because we have to be optimistic. We have to think about the glasses half full. But <laughs> to your point, that's not always where everyone else is coming from, unfortunately, in this world.
0: Then I agree. Trust but verify is a very good approach.
1: And now, a word from our sponsor. Today, we're talking to Andrew Tarvin, co-host of the PNG Alumni Pod. Drew, wait, what's going on here, dude?
2: What do you mean, Roman? You're supposed to be asking me thoughtfully leading questions about my great new ad, VentureUp.
1: Oh, gosh. Does it really come to this, dude? <laughs> what do you mean? Is this supposed to be like one of those public radio pledge drive ads?
2: Uh, I don't know what you're talking about, Roman. We don't have any tote bags yet. Okay, then what the heck is this about? Well, I mean, you know this podcast doesn't exactly pay for itself.
1: What, are you trying to tell me that guest microphones and post-interview production doesn't grow on trees?
2: Uh, sadly, no, and you and I do have day jobs and families, so we probably shouldn't be hand-delivering loaner microphones to John Pepper or Meg Whitman anymore.
1: We've come so far. I actually had a friend walk a microphone over to Edward Goh's house in Cincinnati once, and I even left one on Salesforce executives' porch.
2: Right, see exactly, we've gotta step up our game. And by now you've heard some of the fantastic ads from a number of PNG alumni entrepreneurs. And we're grateful to all of our early supporters, but we also need your help, the listener, to step in too.
1: Yeah, each week many of you, having worked at or never worked at PNG, tune in to hear learnings from leaders and we want you to feature on an upcoming show.
2: This is a great way to let people know about your business. Past sponsors include independent advertising agencies, consultancies on both sides of the pond, software companies, fellow alumni podcasts, DTC and retail brands, and even organizations that do good, like the P&G Alumni Foundation and the Freedom Center.
1: Sponsor packages are affordable and flexible. They can be single episode sponsorships or we can create multi-episode packages. Wanna be the sponsor for a few months and we might even have you on an episode if you've got the learnings. We can even create bigger integration packages with the broader PNG alumni network. I mean, we do know people.
2: Roman, aren't you still on the board of the PNG alumni network?
1: Well, after this ad, I'm not sure for how much longer, Drew.
2: <laughs> well, operators are standing by. We'd love to explore a partnership with you, our favorite listener.
1: Dude, you can't say that. John Pepper, our favorite listener, is listening.
2: (laughs) Sorry, I meant uh, our other favorite listener after John Pepper and my mom.
1: And my mom.
2: Yeah, so that makes that person the fourth favorite listener. So be a Minch, sponsor the pod, and we may even throw in that free tote bag eventually.
1: Email us at pgalumpod at gmail.com. Let's have a chat and we promise you'll never have to listen to a terrible ad like this again.
2: Uh, Roman, I think you meant to say a great ad like this. I mean, it was full of humor that works.
1: Uh, Drew, I think I now have to charge you as a sponsor.
2: (laughs) I'll have my people call your people.
1: And now back to our show. So a lot of our audience, Terry, are rising female professionals. And you've had a, a very long and Winding career with a lot of different experiences. can can you share any moments where you faced professional adversity because of who you were or moments where you observed others being treated differently?
0: So certainly, as you pointed out, you know when i when I started my career and even by the time I got to Proctor ten years later, and it maybe even more so as I was moving up the ranks, it became more and more male dominated, and predominantly white male dominated, as it still is today. And so there were many times where I was the only female in the room. And there were many times that all of the stereotypical biases played out in terms of whether I had a seat at the table, whether my voice was heard, whether I was given the respect that I felt that I was entitled to. And so I had to work harder at it. And that's a place where courage is. I talk about two things that I think are really important for women to be aware of and thoughtful about. And that is confidence and courage and the third one is communication, but that's a different topic. And I do think confidence and courage go hand in hand because in order to be confident, you have to have some degree of courage to be able to take some some chances and you have to have some confidence to be able to put that courage into play. And so I, th- I think that's what I relied upon in these difficult situations is some of that courage to just keep moving forward. And what I found is that as I moved up, I felt more and more responsible, not just for myself, but for others, to address those situations, to make sure that everyone had the same opportunities, regardless of gender or culture or sexual orientation, whatever the case may be. And so, I personally found that, and this sometimes did inspire cringing, that candor with a little bit of humor was the best way to effectively call a spade a spade. And so if, if I felt like I wasn't being heard or somebody wasn't being treated appropriately, I would simply call it out, hopefully in a funny way that relieved some of the tension around the reality of the fact.
1: Disarm things, right.
0: But in a clear enough way that people had to pause and shift and accept. And I think that's how it worked for me but as I said, there's probably some cringing going on on occasion.
1: <laughs> but, but the fact that we're the fact that it causes that cringe—you've broken the moment. Yes, we actually step outside of it in that cringe to think about what just happened.
0: And I think we've learned so much since those days, right? In terms of, I mean, that's one thing that I think is really quite wonderful is when I was going up through the systems, we didn't actually talk about diversity. I, th- I think when I was at Deloitte, we were forming the very first. Women's initiative where we were doing some sensitivity training. And this is a true story. There were so few women available to participate in seminars that I think I had to go five different times to make sure there was a woman in the room. And we just didn't talk about it. The conversation was so immature at, at that point. And today, we certainly still have so many issues, but we're talking about it. It's open it's out there people understand the idea of unconscious bias they understand their responsibility regardless of where they sit on the spectrum to be engaged in this dialogue and so i think that that makes us ripe for for faster progress fingers yeah. crossed anyway
1: yeah on that like kind of matrix of conscious unconscious aware unaware i think as a professional society we're we're pretty close to being more consciously aware. We're not quite at unconsciously aware, but we're, we're aware that something exists and we're kind of thinking more about it than we have been before.
0: And that's a good thing. It's As you say, it's an evolution. Yeah. We need to move faster, but we're moving.
1: <laughs> we always need to be moving faster. I guess I want to transition a little bit to kind of balance, I hate the term balance, but how you've kind of threaded the needle of work and life. Were there ever any moments in your career where you had to take your foot off the gas pedal or the role of family kind of factored more heavily into some of these kind of big career moves that you've made around the country and around the world?
0: It's a very interesting question. I've listened to many of your other podcasts. <laughs> so you yes. know the
1: trend of the answer. <laughs> Talk about
0: this, yes. And It's funny because and maybe this is my own personal disposition, again, either innate or learned, that I always feel generally in balance. And it doesn't mean I'm at the benchmark high point of everything, professionally or personally, but I've always been able to sort of accept that what I have is good. And and I think that willingness to look back more to learn than to judge. And that ability to not obsess about the future, but be intentional about it, allows you to live in the moment with gratitude. And I think that mindset then allows you to feel balanced. And I'm not saying there weren't days where I was pulling my hair out either for my kids, my husband, or my work. Definitely that happened. And Balance is usually achieved through failure when you realize i'm I'm doing something that's not making me feel able to appreciate my life. But I think many of us are we're so smart and capable on so many levels that we can make the choices that that keep the balance in check. It doesn't mean you can have everything. But you can have everything you want, in my opinion. And that's how I feel like my life went. I I feel like I had balance. And I didn't ever consciously take my foot off the pedal for work. But there definitely were times when I didn't travel as much. There were international assignments that I could not take because of my husband's career. But there was something else that was equally good that worked, and and I think that's the, the key is find that equally good alternative that fits in your life, and and then you inevitably will feel good about your choices.
1: Yeah, it's not like there's this utopian idea of balance. It's always finding the balance for the moment. But I love how your answer is about choice, and it's much more… <laughs> This is the fun part about talking to finance people. There's a much more kind of even keeled, choice-driven, <laughs> rational approach.
0: You just get the data, you do the math, it gives you the answer. You're balanced.
1: We need more finance people on this show. <laughs> I want to ask the question a different way. By the time you were my age, you were managing a lot of young professionals entering this kind of same life stage, right? Starting a family, second assignment big international thing, a move across the country. How did you coach them about making these choices and kind of finding that in-the-moment balance?
0: Yeah, this has been a bit of an evolution for me because I really do – I really value – the opportunity I've had to be a manager and a coach and a mentor and an advocate for people and and the people part of it, that part of the equation is, is really so important to me. I hope it is whatever legacy I leave, I hope it involves that organizational building side of it. But when I first was managing and particularly when I was first trying to serve as a mentor, mostly to women at the time, but over over time to men and to women, I made the mistake of two things. One, jumping into solve mode for any question they had. And so they'd come to talk and I'd be like, okay, here's how we're going to fix it, A, B, C, D. And, And two, imposing my own value system experiences and goals on them. And over time, I learned those are both not helpful. That, that what I need to do is make sure that I am listening very, very carefully in a way that helps me understand what is important to them, what they really are feeling and experiencing, and then to engage in a dialogue that lets them move through the thought process to end up in a place that works for them. And I can contribute my own learnings from my own experiences, but they need to internalize it within their own value system and their own needs to come to an answer that works for them. And so it takes a lot of patience to be a good mentor because it's easy to solve problems. It's much harder to coach people in such a way that they are growing and developing a self-sufficiency that enables them to then become a mentor to others. So that's a little high-minded, I know, but but it's been a, a really important learning for me.
1: Well, it's a longer play. It's it's teach a man to fish, right? Exactly. So I think it goes without saying that this has been a year. <laughs> this is going to be a year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this has been a year.
1: <laughs> it's the only way to describe it. Terry. you're a purpose-driven leader. You're someone who's led large organizations through massive change. And while I know our leaders of today aren't necessarily listening, but you have a microphone. If you could tell our leaders in politics, in business, as the rational choice driven finance leader, right? What advice would you give our leaders about this moment that we're in today? Because some are handling it well and honestly some aren't.
0: Oh gosh, that's a yeah, that's a really difficult one because this is in fact a very live microphone. <laughs> So I need to be very careful of what I say. I think this is a time when courage is very much required. Courage to make decisive choices, to provide clarity, to act with integrity and authenticity in a way that sets us up long-term in the right direction there's been a lot of conversation about the responsibility of CEOs to take positions and at the moment many of those positions are all caught up in the divisiveness of of our political system today which is is truly unfortunate and and I do believe that leaders have a responsibility to a broader set of stakeholders I also believe they have a very strong responsibility to the shareholders, but I do think that all leaders need to be stepping back and thinking about what are the right things for the business for the long-term, which means not getting preoccupied with short-term growth and short-term value creation and short-term compensation, but really be looking at what's good and right for the company and the business over time. Secondly, what is right for the employees? Because those employees more and more are the ones who are going to have to deliver any strategy. And so clarity of strategy is great, but culture and organizational talent are, are what's going to make the difference. And so having that top of mind is key. And then I think leading with integrity and humility in a way that conveys the authenticity that allows people to follow in the right direction and that's not about divisiveness that's about clarity and unity and doing what's right.
1: I think you might have answered my next question but what would you say your children have learned from you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I wouldn't want to ask them. There's a few things that that I think they would say. One thing which is sort of fundamental is Whatever your job is, do it well. And I say that because sometimes I'm impatient, as everyone is. And if somebody is not doing their job well, whether it's a server or a technician or the CEO, I always say to them, listen, that's your job. Just do it well. Don't worry about everything <laughs> else. And, and so I think they know that if you're going to take something on, do your best at it. And you have a responsibility to do it well. But I also think they would say that they've learned that failure is a part of life and that living for today is really, really important. I am a person who embraces spontaneity and serendipity as important factors of where we end up in life. I always like to keep my options open because I always think there's something good around the corner that I might want to do. And I think they would embrace all of those and say those are good things, but they probably would say they've learned to be more planful because I don't (laughs) think we've been able to plan a vacation Ever as a family because I'm always thinking. Well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? And <laughs> so, planfulness is maybe something they've learned they need to develop that they won't get from me.
1: That's what. Wow, well, I was going to say maybe that's what happens when you have a CFO mom. But it sounds <laughs> like it sounds like the time you're not you're not sticking to the plan and sticking to the spreadsheet <laughs> is <this> vacation. <laughs> Terry, since we've got to wrap up soon, I want to ask a few fun questions. What's something? about you that surprises people to find out?
0: I think many people are surprised to learn that I am an introvert, that that I am perfectly content with quiet, independent, seemingly mindless activities like a three-mile hike or cleaning my house or <laughs> working out in the yard. I have been habitually so busy and I take on so many things that I just think people would be surprised to learn that a little quiet recharging with mindlessness really, really suits me.
1: That's great. Yeah. I feel the same way. It's the difference between introversion and extroversion, I think, is if you get energy from it or if it takes energy from you. We can all speak on a podcast. We can all speak at the front of the room. But if it's taking energy from you and you need to recharge, then that's a textbook definition, right? Exactly. What's your go-to media escape? Are you more of a movie, book, or TV person?
0: So I do keep very busy outside. And so I don't I don't spend a lot of time in any of them, but I, I like all of them. And I like sort of the same things in all of them in that I like escapism. And so, whether I'm watching a TV series or reading a book or watching a movie, I want it to have great characters and I want it to have neat, happy endings. I'm a <laughs> sappy rom-com girl, I'm a, I'm a happy novel girl, and I love series like Bridgerton or Big little lies or things that just make me happy.
1: What's a movie or a book that has characters you relate to?
0: Right now, I am loving Frederick Bachman as an author. He wrote A Man Called Ove and Beartown and some other – I just finished the one that he just released. And I love that his characters – are sort of complex and flawed and a little perverse sometimes and and i'm I'm enjoying those but i I equally like things like the Tattooist of Auschwitz, which is just such a story of personal survival in in World War two so I like characters with character
1: that's great, speaking of characters. Who's someone out there that you would want to get a coffee with?
0: I know you asked everyone this question, (laughs) and I should say former President Bush or former President Obama. But as I thought about this question, and, and this is a part in reaction to where I am in life, which is I'm retired now, and so I have more flexibility in my calendar. And the conversations I'm loving are the unexpected ones with people that I haven't talked with in some time. So a few weeks ago, I ended up having lunch with an old elementary school friend that I literally had not seen or heard from in 40 years. And gosh, it was so fun. Or I've talked with some mentees who I haven't spoken to in a year or so and gotten caught up with them. And so I'd love more coffees with people that I maybe have lost current contact with just to see where they are and what they're doing.
1: I'd listen to that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) so terry what's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you would give to the next generation
0: well what i have always used as a bit of my mantra is what i would encourage everyone to do and and i have a i talk about this sometimes i have a little sign in my office that i got at a street fair it's very garish orange green purple colors and it says laugh believe take chances trust yourself. And to me, that does capture everything that has been important in my career and in my life. And I would encourage others to embrace the same.
1: I love that approach. Terry, thank you so much for just opening up and sharing your story and your experience. This has just been such a fun conversation to have.
0: I appreciate the time. It's been really fun.
1: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast.
2: Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode.
1: I remember assuming the worst case scenario. I really did think I would lose my career, certainly in corporate America. I remember just thinking, you're already Mexican and Indian, you're already a bit different, you can't also be gay. That's too much. I thought I would lose everything. And I was so, so wrong. The opposite happened. I gained everything. My friends like me more. I'm more successful at work. I hope now as a leader to create an environment that is really inclusive where people can really be themselves because I know the difference. I am a different human. I'm a different leader. When people can give that to other people, it's fantastic. I shouldn't be wrong sooner because we'll learn from it. We'll move on we'll take on tough challenges in a, in a very different way.
2: That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel, and I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the P&G alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.